Welcome to one more edition of Politics and Right. My name is Egberto Willis, your host. Today, we're honored to have James B. Lockhart III, former principal. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Deputy Commissioner and COO of the Social Security Administration and a member of President Bush's Management Council, who is the author of the award-winning book, America Under Water and Sinking. Ouch. And is currently Senior Fellow of the Bipartisan Policy Center, uh, discusses the current state of Social Security, possible cuts and that may be coming, and who will be impacted by most of the changes by Social Security. It's my honor, it's my pleasure to have you here. James, how are you doing today? Just fine. How are you doing? I'm doing great. First of all, tell me a little bit about the genesis of your book. That's an interesting title. I think it's apropos, but it's sort of depressing. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, it's about my government career mainly, and I, I, my first government career was as an officer on a nuclear ballistic submarine, hence the underwater. Right. But all, I ran four government, major government agencies over the years, and all of them have had problems, significant problems, uh, and uh, in many ways they were underwater as well. For President uh, Bush, forty-one H.W. I ran the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, which was having significant difficulties dealing with a lot of bankruptcies of airlines, steel companies. And then, uh, as you mentioned, I was the number two at Social Security when President Bush, 43, W, uh, tried to get Social Security reform. And, you know, as he wrote in his book, uh, he touched the third rail of politics and he was toast. And, <laughs> and, and then... Uh, <laughs> Try, I was not able to escape government. I, most of my career has actually been in the private sector, uh, investment banking, insurance companies, and things like that, risk management. Uh, but then they uh, asked me to be the regulator in 2006, uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Uh, and so I went through the, put them in conservatorship, went through the whole global financial crisis. And, you know, housing was underwater big time. 25% of the mortgage houses in this country had mortgages. Uh, higher so that they were underwater. And, and uh, so I went through that and uh, actually spent uh, about eight, nine months in the Obama administration trying to write the housing market. And we, we eventually did. But the next thing in my book title is it's time to surface. And that's sort of the message in my book. Yes, we're underwater and sinking, but it's time to surface. And Congress and the administration have to get together to try to you know help us surface. Now, let me just kind of get off a, to a caveat here, because earlier you said I did most of my work in the private sector and then you went into government. Let me tell you, your most honorable work that you've done is the work that you've done for the people. And that was in the in the government sector. So I think uh, I think I don't know, I, I find too many people not realize how important that job is to be in the public sector doing good for us all. So. Thank you for that. And I think it, uh, it, it is so much more important. Now, Social Security, um, you worked 
I don't want to necessarily touch on TARP and all these particular issues because we can get into some some ideological problems that I don't want to get into. But Social Security is something that we can actually tackle. And my question to you is, what do you see as the problem within the Social Security system that really has it underwater? Well, I mean, the major problem is us baby boomers have, have been retiring and then continue to retire at a very rapid rate, and we're not getting enough young workers. So the democratics, the demographics have changed pretty dramatically. Uh, and, you know, both President Biden and former President Trump say they're going to protect Social Security. Uh, but they don't mention that in nine years, and CBO just came out with these numbers last week, in nine years, uh, we will have a 23, 25% cut of benefits across the board. And, and if we want to keep paying that, that's half a trillion dollars extra in deficit every year after nine years. So it's a, it's a major problem that we have. Uh, demographics are the major cause, but I would say the secondary cause is the lack of will in Congress and administrations to try to fix it. I, uh, you know, the last major reform was in 1983 when President Reagan and Speaker Tip O'Neill uh, agreed to, on the Greenspan Commission. Uh, <clears throat> President Clinton tried Social Security reform, And as we mentioned, President Bush tried uh, very hard. I mean, I did a, probably 100 events around the country. And, and all the young people wanted Social Security reform. Uh, and the people who weren't going to be touched were the ones uh, that were against it. Uh, Bush said no one over 55 would be touched. Uh, and, and yet AARP and other groups came out against it. It's unfortunate. So, yes, it's the demographics, but it's also the political will. So it's a it's a two two prong issue at this point. Um, I think the political will occurs because it's something that a large percentage of voters don't want. Right. I mean, that's and that's politics. Right. Um, but I, I want to ask a more fundamental question. Have you. Do you know what people actually receive monetarily for Social Security? Well, you, know, you are you are the second in charge of Social Security. Yeah, it's it's all over the place. But uh, in one number I've seen is in when it's cut in nineteen nine years, just nine years, the average uh, family of two will have about a seventeen thousand dollar cut in benefits, uh, and that's a pretty big cut. Uh, you know, so, uh, wait, wait, I, I don't get that. I don't think, where did you get 17,000? I'm they, just curious because I mean, right now the highest, the person that gets the most in social security, let's just call it around $3,000. If we cut by 25%, that turns uh, out to be what? No, well, I mean, uh, it's more than that. I think you can get it either around 50 or so. And, and you can also, your spousal benefit can be half of that. Right. So you can get a really high numbers. And so, yeah, the 17,000 is about 25% of what the benefits would be in nine years for an average couple. Right. Uh, and it's a relatively big number. And, but it, the average couple is not really the problem. It's the lower income people that are, they're really going to be hurt because, you know, you read numbers and that, that you know, close to half of the people rely on social security for almost half their income at retirement. If not and, all and, and and that is a major problem, you know, <clears throat> and any social security reform has to look at that as well. I think we need to increase benefits for the lower income, but we need to slow down benefits, the numbers that we were just talking about for the, the higher income. 
Now, when we look at Social Security, there's this stuff known as a cap, right? In other words, if I am making over, I think it's 140 or 100, I don't have the exact number, my Social Security is capped, right? And uh, it seemed to me, and please, as the expert in the building, tell me why it is that we just don't do what we do with Medicare, and that is to have all income taxed by Social Security, and then uh, more than likely we could actually even drop the the Social Security tax rate. Um, What is the inherent problem with that? Well, uh, there's a couple problems. <clears throat> One is that uh, you know I'll agree that the tax max is is too low now and it needs to be raised. There's no doubt about it. I'm not sure I would go the unlimited because we have a benefit formula that you get benefits for what you put in, and that would mean that you know if you if you kept the present day formulas, people would be making many hundreds of thousands of dollars of Social Security uh, income. So. We have to change the formula. Uh, my my suggestion is we do actually do increase the tax max and then probably continue. It's it's you know goes up with inflation, but we should probably have it go up more than inflation every year. Uh, but I I think the the issue a lot of people say is uh, that if you're going to pay into Social Security, you should get something out of it, uh, and so that's the trade off you need need to work out. Uh, I think there's things we could do for the formula but you know the the, the uh the numbers are quite large like 12 percent between you and your employer so that's a pretty big number uh to take out of the u.s economy uh and so we got to be a little careful about that as well let me um let me ch- do a little challenge here and by the way we do want to talk about your book and not only do we want to talk about your book i want everybody to go out there and buy your book because when we're talking these serious issues i think we should have all sides speak and and be frank about the things that they're talking about and one of the things that i that that concerns me is uh, something that uh, you just said that i think it's pretty important you said how we define social security we define social security as a benefits program that you put in something to get something out of it right um uh, under that concept, I don't know that it should have been called Social Security, right? Because I, I think Social Security should be something that says, as a as a member of society who works and keeps this economy going, if you come on to hard times or you're older or whatever, that our economic system owes you something back. And I shouldn't even say owes you something back, but that is, that is how we flow. Um, and the other concerning thing that I have is that Let's say you're a teacher and uh, somebody else is a stockbroker. Uh, that teacher, I think, has so much value for society. I think you would agree. That stockbroker, maybe not so much. And uh, uh, well, but yeah, correct well, me. Yeah. But no, no, correct me if I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, I'd like to. <clears throat> I'd like you to tell me where I'm failing here. Well, I, I think first of all, if you go back to the, the, the beginning of Social Security, that was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Right. Do you know? And he he's had a quote, and I'll probably get this wrong, but it's something along the line, as you pay into Social Security, they'll make sure that no damn person takes away your benefits. So he always thought of it as as a, you know, pay in and get benefits out. And that's what maybe the name is wrong. Right. They, that's how the plan, this, the system was always designed. Uh, and I think it makes a lot of sense. It's it's a, it's a pension. But 
we also have formulas in there buried in them that most people don't understand that lower income people do get a lot more of what they put in versus uh, an upper income because there's bend points. Uh, so it, it does have some of that. And of course, the other piece of Social Security is disability. And that's incredibly important for so many Americans uh, in working age that become disabled for one reason or another. So there, there is that social service event in it as well. And, and certainly, uh, you know, it's not a means tested program, but it is a program that does uh, give higher percentage benefits for people that are lower income. My daughter is 32. My daughter uh, did all the right things. She went to a four-year college. She then took a few courses and then went to medical school. She she got, while in medical school, a stroke number one. Uh, she got over that stroke. She went ahead and worked hard and finished her medical degree. She got her degree, but she got a second stroke right before she finished her next semester. And she's at home living with us right now, still recovering. She gets, uh, because of the profession she chose, she hadn't gotten a chance to work in society, right? And therefore does not qualify for social security disability, right? And I could name a whole, and again, like I said, she did her part as far as studying to be a doctor, et cetera. We can name a whole lot of these scenarios because we have all these tests within these systems that really, uh, really, I consider unfair to people. Now, the reason I mentioned earlier that I, I don't think we should call what we have Social Security and what we really need is Social Security. You're an expert that um, worked in that department and, you know, people in, in, with, in, in that I try to try to make the case that. I think we're doing it all wrong. Um, people like her, she isn't falling through the cracks. She is the crack, right? Yeah, I understand that because you're right. That, that for to get Social Security disability, you need uh, forty quarters, ten years of work, right? Uh, and uh, you know that is a crack. Now there is another program that Social Security administers. It's not part of the Social Security Trust Fund called Supplemental Security Income. Mm -hmm. and that is a program for lower income people that don't qualify for uh, Social Security disability uh, to get benefits. It's a it's a tough program because there's all sorts of means testing mm -hmm. and all sorts of other issues in it. Uh, but that that is actually funded directly from the government. And that definitely is a, a social benefit. A social not, benefit. Yeah. yeah. Not something that you had to put something into, though. My contention is that. Most the, the fact that you're an American spending in America and being a part of the American system, you are, you know, I, I know a lot of folks don't like to see it that way, you know, I mean, but I, I, I feel that most I don't know. If, have you ever driven in a poor area in the country, uh, let's say in Appalachia or somewhere? Uh, yeah, I've driven through them and stopped occasionally. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly I live in a suburb of New York and there's certainly some poor areas in New York city. Yeah. The, yeah. The reason I bring that up is what you find is these are hardworking people. They just don't command the salaries that would have them earned these benefits that many of us talk about. And, you know, that always brings me into this department, but anyway, let's go ahead and talk about your book. Tell me about 
when you wrote that book, understanding the what we, you know, I mean, your book was is vast. I couldn't read everything. I could just read experts. I mean, you went through TARP, all these subjects that I that I've gone through, subjects that I wanted to hold all presidents and say, why is it that you uh, that you created a TARP? Why is it that those people who created the problem didn't pay for the problem and the person who didn't know did? I don't think your book necessarily was there to explain that, but explain that for me. Why is it that the people who actually were causal in the problems never seem to suffer a, a thing? And, and, and people that go into the system protects these guys. We can. Well, if, if you're, if you're talking about the conservatorships of Fannie and Freddie and, and TARP and, and, you know, I, I was on the TARP oversight board. Yeah. The, the, uh, the point was the economy was in free fall. Yes, it was a problem of a very messy mortgage market, investment banks and other banks uh, doing uh, some very bad lending packaging securities that never should have been packaged, uh, including you know subprime mortgages. Oh and yeah, mort- yeah, mortgages that had no underwriting. You know, people didn't have any income and got mortgage. People would get mortgages that have two years of very low rates and then twenty eight years of very high rates. Yeah. When when that happened, you know, people couldn't afford their mortgages, and then the housing prices tanked. As I said, they were twenty five percent underwater, and neighborhoods were you know starting to really suffer. Even if you you're paying your mortgage, the house next door got foreclosed. Mm-hmm. Your, your house prices went down dramatically as well. So there was a main street problem. I mean, it was a real main street uh, and and all across America problem. Uh, it was hard to fix. I mean, we did a lot of mortgage programs, including one out of TARP uh, that helped modify a, uh, three to four million mortgages that helped people stay in their homes. At, at Fannie and Friday, we did a refinance plan. As mortgage rates came down, we let people refinance their program, even though they didn't have any equity in their house. Uh, so there, there was programs that were funded that were helped Main Street. Uh, you know, they did bail out a lot of banks, but <clears throat> there was, I don't know, 500, 600, 700 banks that failed. Uh, and, you know, a lot of bankers got hurt <laughs> because they were out of a job. So there there was some pain. Uh, and even, you know, the Wall Street big firms that got TARP money, uh, their uh, executives had to take pay cuts uh, and they had to uh, give. Uh, warrants to the U- U.S. government, and the U.S. government did very well. Actually, the U.S. government did extremely well from Fannie and Freddie. They put $190 billion into Fannie and Freddie, and they got over $300 billion back. Uh, so, there, there, you know, there was some toing and froing. But if we had not done something like TARP, uh, we would have had a second depression. I mean, and so that's, that's the, that's the trade off you have to make. Uh, yes, you bailed out some bigger guys. Uh, but that's the trade-off that was being made, and, and and it was not just a U.S. problem. It was a going to be, and it you know it was a global financial crisis. Okay, um, James. One of the reasons that is because you're on the inside and you know exactly how government works, right? Uh, well, sometimes it doesn't work. But <laughs> well, well, let, let, let me let me explain what I'm saying though. Um, when I got the information to to uh, it, that about this interview. I looked at it first and I, you know, I said, well, 
I've seen you before. And then I said, I, I really want to talk to this guy because I want to ask some questions about why, uh, why certain things were done. And it really concerns me when I hear that, you know, we did this because, you know, we were in free fall. Don't you think it was, you, you know, you know, your work very well. You're very good at what you do. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Why didn't you simply take the banks over, nationalize the banks? Well, effectively, uh, that's the FDIC job, not not the job uh, I right, have. Right, right, right. But I get it. Uh, what, what they did is they closed them down, and uh, they then sold them off to other banks or uh, private equity groups. I was actually in a private equity group, and we probably bought five, six, seven banks uh, and had to put a lot of money into rescuing them. Uh, one of the important things the FDIC did was make sure that depositors didn't lose any money. And again, that's a very Main Street thing. Uh, and uh, the, uh, with all due respect to the U.S. government, I'm not sure they'd be a good manager of banks. What value? And tell you, one of the problems we had yeah, in Fannie and I'm sorry. One of the problems we had in Fannie and Freddie is there was legislation that created them, or they were already created, but uh, uh, that allowed them to write mortgages on 100 to 1 capital. So they needed $1 for every $100 they put in in mortgages. And as soon as mortgage prices went down even a little bit, they were underwater. And yet Congress would not change that law. We worked on it for three years for Congress to change the law. Guess when they did change the law? 40 days before we had to put them in a conservatorship. So it, it's, you know, Yes, I wish Congress could do a better job. Yes, I wish government could manage things better. But I'm not quite sure that nationalizing banks would have been the right answer. So let me ask you this, because like I said, I gave you all the kudos that uh, deservedly <laughs> up front, right? And uh, you worked for government. And um, I think, l l let's back up, because you said Congress had this 100 to 1 ratio that it, it, it allowed with, you know, and that actually expanded the money supply like hell. But um, they, they did that, right? But the, doesn't the private sector have a mind of its own that can say, uh, this this behavior for my bank is risky, and therefore, even though I can do it, I won't do it? Isn't the private sector supposed to be efficient in that manner, that it doesn't do things that will ultimately put it at risk? Yeah, they, they should. And, and, and if that many, is uh, many uh, of them, go many ahead, of I'm them sorry. and I agree with you that there was a lot of very bad practices then uh, by banks uh, and uh, big banks and little banks and community banks even. And, and uh, you know, it's sort of, you know, the old saying that, you know, when it, you know, musical chairs, you know, they everybody was until the music stopped and. and it's 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 a problem. It's a house uh, of cards. We were talking about the house of cards for a very long time. I was yeah. talking as a progressive base back then was talking about this house of cards way before we had the crash. And, uh, you know, remember Greenspan changed the rules. I mean, Greenspan. I mean, we were there. Uh, I, I just have this contention that we think the private sector is actually really more efficient than government when we had you in government knowing what to get done done. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I I would agree that certainly parts of the private sector are very inefficient, and certainly parts of the government are very inefficient too. I mean, you know, one of the problems we have is we have too many government programs, is my opinion. We have, as I said uh, in my book, one of the uh, it was a Ben Bernanke quote, but I mean, a lot of other people have used it uh, as well. Is the U.S. government is is an an insurance company with an army. We have. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> and, and it really is. I mean, we have 150 some government insurance programs out there mm-hmm. and people live off them. You know, the private sector gets, you know, pieces. I'm the chair of a museum. Uh, and, you know, if we borrow art from Europe, from Europe, the government pays for the insurance. You know, and, 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 you know, but there's a lots of things, tree ones, you know, everything you can think of, obviously, flood is an important one. Uh, pensions are a very important one that I manage. Fannie and Freddie, you have $6 trillion of mortgages now that they're guaranteeing. Uh, uh, and, you just and, said something I want to talk about, that pension one. Explain to our audience the thing about pensions. Let's say Continental, well, showing my age, I'm sorry. Let's say United Airlines decided that they couldn't afford their pension anymore. They could throw that stuff right to the government and it is insured by the government. Explain that because it, it seems to me like that is another giveaway to the private sector. But please go ahead and do that. Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, there's two kinds of pensions, as you know, the the 401k yeah. and and the defined that's a defined contribution and defined benefit. The pension benefit guarantee company does the defined benefits, the sort of the old-fashioned plan, right? Which many of the big companies, especially the unionized companies, have. And uh, what what happens is if a company gets into big trouble, uh, they tend not to fund their pension plan and it gets more and more underfunded, and, and then. <clears throat> The PBGC has to take over the plan if they declare bankruptcy and they can't afford the pension. The PBGC takes it over, uh, but people don't get their full benefits. There's a haircut. Uh, And so that's painful for the individuals. And one of the things I always pushed is for the individuals in that kind of pension plan to put pressure on the companies to better fund the pension plans. Uh, And and it's a problem. In the American Rescue Plan, uh, there was a bailout of the PBGC's pension plans of like $80 billion mm-hmm. uh, for the multi-employer, that's the unionized plans, uh, Teamsters being the biggest one. Uh, so it's, 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 you know, there was a bailout there. And unfortunately, that's what happens when government creates an insurance program uh, and then says it's not backed by the government. In theory, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation is, is a mutual and not guaranteed by the government. But of course, in the end of the it day, is. yeah, just me and Freddie were not guaranteed by the government, but at the end it of the is. day, yeah, and so government creates these programs uh, and does it poorly, and then when they need to be fixed, they don't get them fixed. And yes, the private sector takes advantage of that sometimes, but in the case we were talking about, uh, some of the plans that went under in my day, TWA, Pan Am, Eastern, Continental one went under, but came mm-hmm. back. Uh, a lot of the steel companies, uh, Bethlehem, LTV, you know, a whole series of steel companies went under uh, and didn't come back. Uh, <clears throat> so oftentimes the management's out of a job. And the good news in some of those cases, the management had pensions that got cut as well. But 
But I, I guess what I'm saying, uh, James, is um, for everything that we've just spoken about, right? The government did something bad with the insurance companies. These private sector folks, they're the ones that didn't pay into the pension. They're the ones that mismanaged a company who would have needed this service of the government if they failed. But it's the government. I think, let me tell you what I think. I think uh, we need a lot of people like you who wouldn't do what these people in the private sector have done and work in government and make it work. Government can only be as good as the people that's inside a government, right? That's what I think. Yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, there's a lot of recommendations in my book about how we can manage the government better as well. Uh, and we need to. I mean, we have like 3,000, maybe that more than that, political appointees. So every time there's a new president, we have a whole layer. And sometimes in the big departments, three or four layers down of, of political appointees, some of which got there because they gave money or they got there because they worked on a campaign and they often don't have the expertise for the agency they were running. And, and that is a problem uh, that we have in our political system. If you go into the UK, I mean, as an example, you know, political appointees are one layer, not four or five layers down. And it, it, it is a problem in our structure. And it's one of the things we need to reform is we need to, you know, former president trump and others talked about the deep state if you will and, and in my view we have a lot of great people working in the government uh all the agencies i ran there was really people that are very devoted to to but they need leadership and and uh, unfortunately we keep cycling through the leaders and and we end up uh you know not doing a good job and congress is not helping and as you point out, the private sector does sometimes take advantage of that. Uh, and it's something we need to reform. I don't know if um, I, I really have I, I really have a bone that I continuously pick with the corporate structure. And that is because I honestly think that um, the boogeyman really isn't the government, but the boogeyman is a private sector. And I, I, re I believe in um, and by the way, I, I, I believe in the private sector the good part of the private sector that I, I really um, hope will exist at some time. I, I talk about a bifurcated market. I believe in having tremendous social programs, having people pay their fair due. And also, uh, this has nothing to do with your book. I just want to see, I, I know that you're a pretty conservative guy. What do you think about billionaires? About what? Billionaires. Do you think anybody really earned being a billionaire? Uh, well, I'm not a billionaire and not even close. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, it, it's a difficult issue because, you know, some of them have worked very hard for it, but when you have a billion dollars, what do you do with it? Hopefully you give it away and you, you know, you give it to charity. But, can and, you, but my question though, James, is can you earn it? Um, uh, in our system, you can earn it. Yes. Uh, oh. You Who, earn it. Name me one billionaire that you think has earned their billion and why? Uh, well, you can look at Musk as an example. He's built electric cars, which are, you know, an important environmental good. Mm -hmm. uh, you can look at a lot of people uh, in the financial side that made the money by trading securities. And you can you can argue either way on that one if you want to. 
Uh, and uh, but you know, there's other people that you know have made their billions by building important uh, institutions. Uh, but you know, I, I I have no problem with higher uh, taxes for higher income people uh, as long as it's done reasonably fairly. Uh, I'm, I mean, glad we, you, I'm glad that we, you. I'm glad that you use must. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. We have a giant deficit at this point mm-hmm. in this country. You know, last year it was two trillion dollars. This year it'll be one one point six. We have you know gross debt of the United States at thirty four trillion dollars, uh, and you know we have a hole, and it has to be filled, and it has to be filled with taxes, but also better government. You know, managing the programs better so we spend on things we should be spending on and not things we shouldn't be spending on. So again, I I agree with you. There's issues in the private sector, but I also would say that there's issues in in the uh, government sector. That's I, why I, we agree on that. What it is, because we, I think we're we're underwater and sinking not only in the government but in parts of the private sector too. There's no doubt about it. That we need better management. Yeah, and the reason I, I, I this it wasn't a trick question when I asked you about let's say the billionaire. It's just that um, even Musk, as we speak, Musk much of his income is derived from government grants, technology that was created by other people. I worked for NASA. I was an engineer at NASA for a long time. I got one salary uh, to create, innovate, to invent. I want to ask you a, 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 a thing here. I always talk to people about, um, people always tell me that the reason we need these excessive profits for billionaires, however they get their monies, et cetera, is the, is the ability to innovate. Yet the innovators are actually like me as an engineer who created P- software for the space station. I got paid once. Musk gets paid Every single time something happens that somebody else bills for him. And henceforth, the question that I ask, has a billionaire really earned his billions? Every single thing that uh, Musk has earned his money on, many of us created over time from the Apollo program right on up. The technology to do a suborbital flight wasn't all that. I mean, I'm an engineer. It wasn't all that. Yeah. And so when I see billionaires like Musk or even Gates, even I like Gates, I really do like Gates, but I'm a better programmer than Gates is. I've seen Gates's code and I'm not, I'm, I, that's not a joke. I'm yeah. a better programmer than, 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 than uh, Gates is. I would never be a billionaire, but uh, his money didn't come from his innovation. His money came from his business acumen. Which uh, so I, I, these are the these are the concepts that I try to get across to in the in the work that we do. Who earns it? Let's look at Brother James B. Lockhart III. You've written a great book. I scanned it through. I didn't see it all, but you've worked in government. You've you've gone in there and looked at the numbers and know that there's something that needs to be done. Your value to me is a lot more than Musk's value to our society. And I wonder, I am not trying to be nice here. I'm just saying, I'm wondering when we are going to realize who is actually making things better for society as a whole. And I don't think the billionaires are. I think people who are lifting up their cuffs and going out there and doing the work are. But anyway, that's enough of my sermon. Well, go ahead. Answer if you want to. Well, no, I mean, I... You know, thank you for your government service. As I said, I think there's so many good people in the government uh, that do a lot for for, for American people. 
I would argue, you know, and at least in some of these companies, the, the workers are getting stock options and whatever. So mm-hmm. they're getting some piece of that pie. Uh, obviously, not the biggest piece that uh, Musk gets. Obviously, exactly. And then, you know, he's for being the so- puppet driver, right? <laughs> yes. So you know, I I, I think uh, you know they're the incentives should be reworked some way. I mean, in in my agency, actually, uh, we actually, and there's a few government agencies like this, that we actually were able to pay our workers more than, I, I think I had 25% of my staff making more than I was at the uh, uh, regulator, Fannie and Freddie, and we paid them bonuses. So we, we tried, and that's the kind of things in some government agencies more should be done, I think. Uh, we need to reward those good people that are willing to, you know, work for a lot less than they get could get in the private sector, uh, and and that's that's an important other thing we need to do in the government is do a better job of rewarding the really bright people that are making things happen. Well, look, let me tell you, uh, uh, we are we are coming out of time now. So what I'd like you to do is tell us uh, why somebody needs, a, and I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and tell folks. The book is America Underwater and Sinking. I think it's a book we should all read it. It comes from the perspective of Brother James B. Lockhart III, who's had quite powerful jobs in uh, the Bush administration and the Obama administration. In fact, is the second man in charge of Social Security. So anybody here on Social Security, if something goes wrong, look at the person in the on the screen right now. Anyway, tell us a little bit about why they should go ahead and pick up your book and and, and let's go from there. Well, as as the subtitle says, time to surface with lessons learned. And so there's a lot of lessons learned in there talking about all these government programs that need to be worked, but also talking about how, you know, the private sector needs to do it better. So it, it's the story of my government career and things that went wrong and things that went right. And, and but from that, I'm trying to draw some lessons uh, that are bigger than just uh, my career. And, and, you know, there's a lot of things that should be done. And for instance, in Social Security at the moment, we need a, a commission uh, of Congress to, to fix that, uh, Republicans and Democrats, uh, like we did at the Bipartisan Policy Center. I mean, there's programs that really need to be fixed for the American people uh, to protect them, but also protect the deficits. Social Security, uh, if we wanted to pay all the benefits that are scheduled over the next 75 years, we'd have to put in $22 trillion today and, and invest it. Uh, and so we, we have these big holes that we need to fill. So a lot of the book is saying, how do we fix these programs that we have created and protect the American people? And that's really the, the important message is we need to fix government, uh, working with the private sector and uh, protect the American people and reduce the deficits that are going to eat us up. James B. Lockhart III, former principal deputy commissioner and COO of the Social Security Administration, both under the Bush administration and partially under the Obama administration. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Then Right. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. 
we spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join. 